Friday. Legal discussion on Tip Today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. And John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors joins me in studio. Good morning to you, John. Uh, good morning, Fran. Just thinking during that competition there, you know, why why allow one or two words to deal with it when you can talk nonsense for, like, ten minutes? I hope that's not a precursor <laughs> to what I'm about to say. Uh, enduring power of attorneys back in the news again, John. Yes, yes. And uh, you're going to talk to us a bit about it again. Yeah, well, what I've done is I've, I was saying to you there over the last couple of weeks that I've been looking at the paperwork that we have and the various information leaflets that we produce, which we have on our website and which we hand out to clients. And <clears throat> one of the ones that I've looked at and reviewed is the enduring power of attorney. And the enduring power of attorney is just one of many ways that you can future plan and in terms of future planning, what you're looking at, we all kind of talk about wills. Well, we all talk about wills, whether we make them or not, is another thing. But the other complement, complementary part of, you know, forward planning is an enduring power of attorney. And an enduring power of attorney was introduced in Ireland to deal with the fact that if you become incapacitated before you become finally incapacitated, if you know what I mean. Um, You're in a situation there where you can have a lockdown in terms of your assets and you can have a lockdown in terms of, you know, your wishes on various things. So they came up with the enduring power of attorney as a way of trying to cope with that or deal with that or manage that. And what it is, is it is literally where you, and it's a two-step process to understand because some people are inclined to think that when you make an enduring power of attorney you're handing off responsibility for the management of your life to somebody else but you're only doing it the first step is to actually sit down and plan what you might like to happen if that happens if you know what I mean but the important part is the if it happens, because the second part of an enduring power of attorney process is to actually register it. Because <clears throat> when you go through the formality of making one and you sit down and you plan it out and then you put it into, into writing and then you get it signed up. Once you get it signed up, it, it literally will just sit there in abeyance mm. if and until... Uh, something happens that means that you lack capacity to look after your affairs. And just just for clarity, John, mm. it's the appointment of a person to look after your affairs in the event of incapacity. Is that does Correct. that sort of sum it up? Absolutely, yeah. that's it in a nutshell. And what it is, the do, there's there's like all legal things, there are, there are, there's terminology that goes with it. The donor is the person who makes the enduring power of attorney. So the donor, if you like, donates authority to somebody. The attorney is the person who you nominate or persons that you nominate to carry out these instructions. But the the important thing about an enduring power of attorney, and one of the things a little bit like wills that people are maybe not as au fait with, and that is that they can be as simple or as complex as the circumstances demand. So, and I'm going to get to it before your listeners are going to ask me the obvious question, how much does it cost? The reality of it is that 
depending on the complexity of the power of attorney, will depend on the cost that's ah, involved. Right. Because okay. obviously, if you have a simple, straightforward uh, document that deals with a very simple, straightforward uh, scenario, well, then obviously you're dealing with not as complex and costly a procedure. Now, and the interesting thing about the enduring power of attorney, I, I remember when it first came in, um, I have to admit that I didn't study it at the time. I think I possibly was too young, I thought, to be looking at enduring powers of attorney, which is somewhat contrary and considering that I'm the one that's always telling people that you should be doing wills and enduring powers of attorney. But an enduring power of attorney is kind of something that you would do from a very early age, like, you know, taking out a pension. It's like a pension for future incapacity, if you know what I mean. And the enduring power of attorney, like what's important about it is that you could simply do one that would literally, if you like, hand over responsibility for everything to a nominated individual. And you could do one that could be limited to saying, I'm going to hand over responsibility to sell the house if I become incapacitated. Or you could hand over responsibility to say, I only want somebody to manage my personal kind of care, you know, where I live, how I live, whether I go into a nursing home, whether I stay at home, etc. So in other words, there's either all of your financial affairs or all your personal circumstances or a combination of both and or a variation of both, if you understand what mm-hmm. I mean. So you can have a, a broad-ranging, really wide-sweeping kind of authority that you can hand over. And I think in an awful lot of cases, people will look at just simply handing over a general power to people that they trust and that they know and who understand them and know what they want. And one of the things that when I was looking at this document that we that I've prepared, which is the guide to enduring powers of attorney, which by the way, if anybody wants it, uh, or a copy of it, if they want to email me at john at lynchthelistress.ie, I'm quite happy to give them a copy of it. But the when I was reviewing the document, I suddenly kind of not suddenly, but I came to the realization that there are many components to this particular scenario, as you can well imagine, because you know mixed in with this whole thing is your forward planning in terms of do you want to stay at home, do you want to go into a nursing home, if you do go on to go into a nursing home, do you want to avail of the fair deal scheme? If you want to avail of the fair deal scheme, how do you want to deal with the financing of it? Do you want to stay at home? If you do want to stay at home, do you want the home care uh, package that's available through the HSE? If you are going to ask somebody to look after your health scenario, should you be considering doing an advanced health care directive? And an advanced health care directive is a document that found its way into law under the 2015 Act, which is the uh, it's the decision-making act. It's the Capacity Act. It deals with a whole range of things. Now, when I was looking at this, then I looked at that whole area, which is the area of assisted decision making, because, you see, when they introduced enduring powers of attorney, not everybody is going to need uh, an enduring power of attorney, if you know what I mean. So it's not a kind of a, a total handover situation. And when they introduced the 2015 Act, which I checked uh, yesterday, I'm wondering at what stage is it at in terms of uh, implementation because, you see, 
it's a bit like somebody sent me a text message from Bahrain or some where I had dealt with the office had dealt with their family law situation and they asked me what's the story on the on the divorce scenario in Ireland in terms of the two years and I had to explain to them that well, although it's legislation the, the although it's law in Ireland it hasn't found its way onto the practical application as of yet because they haven't passed and I went I didn't go on to the Boris rant or anything mm. like that but effectively it hasn't become operational yet and the fact that in 2015 they passed a piece of legislation which dealt with the whole area of how you know how do you define whether somebody's able to manage their affairs or not and was looking to get rid of the whole wardship scenario now what's the wardship scenario the wardship scenario is that if at this point in time somebody does not have an enduring power of attorney and if something happens that they lack capacity at that point in time it is too late to put an enduring power of attorney in place it is too late to nominate somebody to look after your affairs so the state you know, not the state, but all an emanation of the state. You actually have to go and apply to make the person a ward of court. And when you make them a ward of court, the management of their affairs is passed to the court, the wardship system, and you deal through the wardship office. So, I mean, for example, when I had a client 20 years ago involved in a very serious accident, and as a result of the accident, they lacked capacity, there was only one option at that point in time. Uh, There was no injury power of attorney. It was just simply wardship. Now, under the 2015 Act, which has not yet come in, because they're so busy trying to do all the background uh, paperwork with it and and all the implementation that's required with it, that particular piece of legislation we're now being told is going to come in in 2020, which is next year. When next year, who knows when it might come in. Right. And and let me just understand that, John. Mm. Is that about how it's deemed that you're incapacitated? Exactly. That is... Now, I want to... uh, try and not over over complicate it but what that is doing is it's done a couple of things it's introduced a whole raft of other ways of dealing with lack of capacity mm. so what it has done is it has introduced what we call assisted decision making mm. and what that really effectively means instead of doing an enduring power of attorney whether where I will nominate somebody literally to take over control and management of my either my fin- financial affairs and or my health mm. uh, issues and you know a combination of that if you know what I mean however limited or broad that might be under the 2015 Act you're going to have a broad range of kind of tools that are going to be available to you so you'll have co-decision makers so in other words you could nominate your son, daughter next to kin, partner whatever who would act as a co-decision maker so they'd help you make decisions Mm. and then you'd have a decision maker who would literally take on the function of almost an attorney The common misconception is that your next of kin has the ability to do all of these things, but that's not the case. No, no. I mean, the next of kin, obviously, is entitled to make application, for example, to make you a ward of court. Mm. Uh, Your next of kin would be, like, when you're looking at the wardship scenario, you're talking about that you have what they call a committee, and the committee, 
uh, is literally nominated individuals by the court who will take on, if you like, the intermediary functions, like the court office will tell them, okay, Mm -hmm. this is how we're going to manage the funds, this is how we're going to deal with the... Like in the case of the wardship that that I've been dealing with for years, for example, Mm -hmm. on an annual basis, you'd have to make application to the wardship office for, let's say, if the ward the person who was in the care of the court wants to go on holidays and things like that, you'd actually have to go and apply to the court office. If they wanted to, say, do a little bit of renovations at home, you'd have to apply to the worship office. If they mm. wanted to make a gift, you'd have, you'd have to apply to the worship right. office. Right. So the whole, the, the whole process that you're looking at here is a kind of whole collection of things. But the enduring power of attorney, to me, is as important mm. as making your will. I think it's probably clear-cut then in an event of an accident that somebody is seriously incapacitated. Mm. The only concern I would have if you take a mental illness situation where Mm. it's it's vague, to say the least, whether somebody has capacity or not. Is Is that an issue? Yeah, that's a very good question because the question that arises there is you're saying to yourself, well, okay, I've done my enduring power of attorney. I'm fine now. I come along in 10 years' time and I'm saying it's me, let's say, in 10 years' time. Uh, no, we'll make it 20. I'm more comfortable with 20. <laughs> so in 20 years' time, uh, the people around me think that I'm losing my marbles and don't have capacity anymore. The question that you have to ask yourself is, are there any safeguards mm. to ensure that somebody doesn't abuse that position? Yes. Now, that's really interesting because under the 2015 Act, they are bringing in a new regime to monitor and oversee enduring powers of attorney or attorneys under enduring powers, if you understand what I mean. Mm. And they have brought in a much more definitive mechanism to deal with the responsibility of the attorneys, complaints that can be made by attorneys, the reporting obligations of attorneys. At the moment, it's uh, I need to be careful when I say... And when you're talking about attorneys now, you're talking about the appointed person. I'm talking about the person, exactly, I'm not talking about lawyers, I'm talking about the person appointed as your attorney under the enduring power of attorney. But when they set up, and actually when I was doing the book that I put a section on the 2015 Act, I call it the 2015 Act, it's just easier than calling it the Incapacity, uh, whatever, in Decision Making Act 2015. But under the, under the 2015 Act, they've introduced a new agency that's going to oversee both the making of the enduring power of attorney because you see, when you make your enduring power of attorney, I don't just sit down, do the document, hand it to you and say, Fran, sign that. Mm. There are procedures that have to be complied with. So there are safeguards when you create the enduring power of attorney to make sure that you notify two people other than the people that are appointed as attorneys. Uh-huh. You have to get clearance from the doctor to say that you're capable of doing it. You have to get clearance from the solicitor who's involved in it, say that you fully understand it. And then when you trigger on to step two, which is the registration, now under the registration process, you must have a doctor certificate to say that someone uh-huh. lacks capacity. And that's and you must serve notice on the same people that you serve notice on and on the donor themselves. So in other words, on 
in my case, you'd serve notice on me, you'd serve notice on the notice parties, the people other than the attorneys would have to serve notice on the same two people that were notified. Right, so these are one. the safeguards. So they, they're your kick-in safeguards. That's right, very good. And under the new uh, regime, you're going to have to actually make reports All on right. an annual basis. And, and, and just briefly, if you would, John, and you touched on it yourself, but one of our listeners saying, it's an expensive document. I paid 1000 to take out power of attorney. Um, uh, Teresa was onto us with that. Yeah. Is, is that the case? It is, yeah. yeah. It it is. It Depending is. on the complexity. Well, you see, the problem with it is it's 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 quite um, I was going to say top heavy, but it's there's quite a lot of paperwork mm. involved in it. So you have to notify the doctor, you have to okay. sign certificates. That, so it is. It's not a straightforward scenario of putting one sheet of paper under you and signing it. All right, uh, John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors. Thanks, John.